kids who can't. Why are more American teenagers than ever suffering from severe anxiety? That is the title of a fall article, a cover article in the New York Times Sunday Magazine section a month or so ago. Relentless pressure on today's youth make them the most emotionally distressed and vulnerable young people ever, with anxiety replacing eating disorders, self-harm, and depression. Parents, therapists, and schools are struggling to figure out why, and whether helping anxious teenagers means protecting them or pushing them to face their fears. In addition to helicopter parents and social pressures, social media are heightening the teen's relentless comparison to their peers. One teen spoke of a tortured relationship with Facebook, which allowed him to obsessively follow and compare the filtered exploits of his peers to his own. Recognizing the connection between the new media and anxiety, let's explore the features that make it impossible for young people and old people to have disconnected moments of peace. Michael Harris, author of Solitude in, in Pursuit of a Singular Life in a Crowded World, suggests that technology has made us socially obese. Socially obese, gorged on constant connection, but never properly nourished. Harris points to a connection between social media anxiety, depression, narcissism, and unhappiness. The belief that it is possible to do two or more things well at the same time, multitasking, skimming incoming data, picking out relevant details, and moving on to the next stream is termed continuous partial attention. Continuous partial attention. Paying attention, but only partially, the impact on civility and manners and interpersonal communication is noticeable even if we ignore it. Continuous partial attention. Next there is perpetual awareness. Perpetual awareness is a 24-7 connection to technology in which every minute is met with demands for relevant data and information and is perceived as requiring an immediate response. 70-something-year-old Stephen Miller, author of As I Await a Reply, Anxiety Sets In, claims that if he has not heard from a friend or does not receive a response to an email in a reasonable amount of time, he Googles the person to see if he's missed his obituary. <laughs> he says he suffers from what he calls communication anxiety. The communication loop is the brain's craving for novelty, a constant simulation, stimulation, and immediate gratification. There is a comparison to drug addicts who need more and more drugs to get the same high. In short, loneliness and anxiety may not only be the result of parental over-involvement, but also the result of hyperconnectivity a chronic epidemic of our age because social networks do not bring people closer together, 
or provide companionship and lasting friendships. Social obesity, continuous partial attention, perpetual awareness, communication anxiety, and communication loops. They describe the problem that is plaguing us and especially our children. The question tonight is, does Judaism provide guidance for escaping these traps? In chapter 35 of this week's Torah portion, Vayishlach, God sends Jacob to Luz, later known as Bethel, in order to, as the text says, be rid of alien gods and purify yourselves and change your garments. According to Jewish tradition, the legendary city of Luz was a mythological refuge from the woes of the world and the only place on earth in which the angel of death had no power because it was there that Jacob dreamed of the staircase ascending to heaven. Luz also served as the model for the utopian Shangri-La described by James Hilton in his 1933 novel, Lost Horizon, where people lived in a state of perfection. In this social media charged world, you may wonder if there is a way to draw closer to the peace and serenity ascribed to Luz. By extension, can we discover the antithesis of Timothy Leary's 60s catchphrase, turn on, tune in, drop out? Can we instead say, turn off, tune out, and drop in instead? I have four recommendations to reduce the ever-present ever anxiety of this age. One, mitzvot are more than good deeds. They are divinely commanded actions that are the stepping stones to what Abraham Joshua Heschel called the ineffable delight of sacred deeds. Be sure, he said, that every deed counts, that every word has power, and that we can all do our share to redeem the world in spite of all the absurdities and all the frustrations and all the disappointments. And above all, remember to build life as if it were a work of art. Find a mitzvah. Visit a shut-in. Volunteer in a community organization that feeds the poor or help those who have lost their way. A little-known Hebrew phrase, bitul Torah, means annulling the law, annulling the Torah. It refers to wasting time that could otherwise be devoted to consecrated work. Bitul Torah is frivolous activity that keeps us from using our time for a higher purpose. It is a concept that notes the tension between utilizing and wasting time. Judaism teaches us that the correct use of time is the sacred path to a fulfilled life while squandering time results in a wasted life. Do something for someone else. Often the only, the only reward for doing a mitzvah is the opportunity to yet do another mitzvah as Pirkei Avot, the sacred text, Ethics of the Fathers instructs, mitzvah goreret mitzvah. One mitzvah, one kind, charitable 
divinely commanded deed leads to yet another one, just as one transgression leads to another transgression. Now you might think, I don't have the time to do all the things I need to do for myself and my family and my friends, let alone help others. Then work a mitzvah into the course of your daily life where you do not actually have to go out of your way in order to brighten the day of someone else by saying a kind word, by recognizing a skill that is thankless, a skill that's never complimented or noted, by asking how someone's day is going. Tell them how your day is going. Be it a supermarket checker, a bus cab or lift driver, a bank teller, let me share a personal reminiscence that influenced my life. When I was age 13, I visited an adult cousin in Miami, in Florida. And on Collins Avenue, she chatted with a police officer standing where she had parked her car. When the conversation was over, I asked her why she had done that. And she said something that I never forgot. She said it didn't cost her anything to help make him feel appreciated and to make his day a little brighter. Mary Gordon's poem, For Those Whose Work Is Invisible, takes note of laborers and laborers whose work is almost always unnoticed. For those who paint the underside of boats, makers of ornamental drains on roofs too high to be seen, for cobblers who labor over inner souls, for seamstresses who stitch the wrong side of linings, for scholars whose research leads to no obvious discovery, for dentists who polish each gold service of the fillings of the upper molars, for sewer engineers and those who repair water mains, for electricians for artists who suppress what does injustice to their visions, for surgeons whose sutures are a thing of beauty, for all those whose work is for your eye only, for your entertainment or their own, who sleep in peace or do not sleep in peace, knowing that their efforts are unknown. Protect them from downheartedness of the eye. Grant them perseverance for the sake of your love, which is humble, invisible, and heedless of reward. You may find that doing a simple mitzvah of acknowledging someone's unnoticed, unrecognized work will make that person feel more worthwhile. But it will also make you feel more gratified that's my first recommendation. All of you understand the value of making Shabbat time away from the frenetic activity of daily life. I would like to suggest that you uh, strongly consider getting one of these.
This is a cell phone sleeping bag. <laughs> and you have to have it because the temptation of, I'll just have one little look. Now, this makes it a little more difficult. I hope that you will consider getting cell phone sleeping bags. We can get them for you. Put your cell phones and all technology to sleep for one day a week. If you can't do that, try six hours without being connected. Go out and smell the flowers or do something else you can't do during the workday week. In yesterday's New York Times, an article championed the virtue of creating wheel-made pottery as a therapeutic way of diminishing anxiety or restoring equilibrium when the feeling is that it's not possible to absorb any more stimuli that is being thrown at a person. Of course, this is nothing new. There is a form of Japanese therapy called Morita. And in Morita, the prescription for the patient or the client is to do something mindless. So the therapist will send someone out to uh, rake gravel for an hour or some other mindless kind of thing. And the strange thing is, it really works. It's one of the reasons I love to garden, because the plants don't talk back to me. I, I feel like I'm lost in my own world. You all, you all probably know that the average person compulsively checks his cell phone 47 times a day. But the 18 to 24 age population checks it 86 times a day. Commemorations and celebrations are the antidote to what the deceased young woman in Thornton Wilder's Our Town discovered when she was offered an opportunity to return to Earth. She chose her 16th birthday as the day she wanted to relive. It's a scene that profoundly disappoints her because everyone is too busy to appreciate and enjoy the day's wonder. Saddened by her parents' disregard of her special day, she begs to return to her eternal rest with these words of farewell. Goodbye, Mama. Goodbye, Papa. Goodbye, Grover's Corners. Goodbye to clocks ticking and hot coffee and newly ironed dresses. Oh, Earth, you are far too wonderful for anyone to realize you. Then she turns to the stage manager and asks, tell me, does anyone on Earth ever realize life while he lives it every, every minute? And to final words, that's all human beings are, blind people. My second recommendation is to free yourself and your children of the urgency of social media and email by focusing instead on the urgency of time that offers greater purpose and meaning rather than focusing on fleeting tweets and Facebook posts. My third suggestion, in my commencement address at Jesuit University of San Francisco in 2013 when I was given an honorary doctorate, I urged the, do the graduates to consider not only the life of the mind, but also the life of the spirit. I said the following to them. Explore your faith as a source of strength. 
both for the victories and the challenges you will face. The loss of a loved one, the commitment and sanctification of a relationship with your life partner, the birth of a child, careers, moments of exaltation and moments of despair. To do so, you cannot be a stranger to your faith. Even if you are not a regular worshiper, establish a relationship with a clergy person and figure out what it means to have a spiritual practice. Be grateful for what you have. As the sacred scripture notes, we do not live by bread alone. And I concluded by saying, you have mastered the care and feeding of your body and minds. Now give careful thought to the nourishment of your souls. My third recommendation is to nourish your souls by establishing a spiritual practice that will enable you to step back from the background noise of life and connect with a world of very different offerings. And finally, my fourth recommendation is to focus on the joys of life and to count your blessings. C.W. Metcalf, author of Lighten Up, Survival Skills for People Under Pressure, carries a joy list in his pocket, a notebook listing moments that, he, that made him laugh or smile. He got the idea from a 13-year-old boy who was dying of cancer. One day, the boy handed him a list of 113 memories of joyful, happy moments in his life. Here, he said, give this to my parents when I die. It's all the fun I think my parents have forgotten. In fact, my parents have only focused on what he would miss, and the boy wanted them to remember the joy in his life. Two men are in conversation, and one says, I count my blessings. Oh, that's great. Good for you, said the other. No, no, really, I count my blessings. I keep them here. When I think of one, I number it, and I add it to the list. You're kidding me. It's something I do. Number one, my health. That's pretty basic. Number two, I can still go bowling, even with my bum shoulder. Number 1,943, I like teaching, and I'm good at teaching. Number 2,845, it's quiet and warm in my apartment in the morning, and I can always have a cup of tea and look out of the window. I mean, that's a blessing. That's an honest-to-goodness blessing. Right. Number 3,971, turkey jerky. <laughs> turkey jerky? I'm at 7,904 right now. 7,904 blessings counted. You've counted 7,000 blessings? How long did that take? It started when I was 12. I had a fortune cookie. It said, count your blessings. Vayishlach, Jacob sent forth messengers. And my hope is to send you forth tonight on a journey, a sacred path to a less anxious and more fulfilled life. Amen.